Hello and welcome to On Crime and Punishment. This is a podcast from the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Haggerty, one of the faculty members in the Department of Sociology at U of A, interviews Justin Pichet, a professor in the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Their discussion focuses on COVID in Canadian prisons during the second wave of the pandemic. This was recorded in February of 2021, and my apologies as the editor, I fell a little bit behind on working on the podcast, so we are playing catch up a little bit here. All right, so you can find this podcast on any of the platforms where podcasts are hosted, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or, or most other podcast apps. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us a nice review. It helps move us up in the search algorithm. Like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at CCR underscore U of A. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, uh, welcome. Uh, we are today doing a follow-up discussion with Dr. Justin Pichet at the University of Ottawa. Uh, we spoke uh, we were just sort of comparing numbers. We spoke earlier, and that would be in November, early November 2020. Uh, as we speak now, it is early February 2021. There have been a series of important developments related to, to COVID and incarceration and some vaccine developments. So we thought it'd just be an opportunity to update uh, uh, how things are going and what's important. And uh, that's the plan. How are you doing, Justin? Good, yourself? Doing well. As you know, it is minus 35 in Edmonton, so we're doing fantastic. Uh, so I guess the, the place to start, it has been a few months now since we, we talked. As I said, there's been some important uh, developments in related to COVID and incarceration. I thought maybe you would just kind of give us a summary of your sense of what's been happening and what's important. Um, well, I mean, one thing that we have seen as the second wave has continued is uh, a number of more cases inside our prisons and jails. So when we last spoke, we were kind of coming off, um, I'd say like a, a summer lull, if you will, of cases. There wasn't that, that many cases being reported uh, after the first wave had ended into the early fall. And then in October, um, the second wave as it was taking off and outside in our communities, um, things inside were starting to take off as well, unsurprisingly, um, inside our carceral institutions. So like in October, uh, through a media analysis and disclosure of some, uh, some data that some jurisdictions had released, there was a around 350 uh, COVID cases linked to November. We see roughly double that, around 650 cases. And then December, things really, really took off. There were um, close to 1,700 um, cases amongst prisoners and, and staff. Um, and largely, that was being driven by significant spike in cases in uh, provincial jails, as well as federal penitentiaries in uh, the Prairie Provinces. So in Manitoba, in Saskatchewan, in Alberta, um, some pretty... Uh, significant outbreaks. And so we get to the end of 2020 and through um, the tracking that the Prison Pandemic Partnership was doing, we, we'd identified, um, you know, over 2,800 cases amongst prisoners, 689 cases amongst staff, a couple contractors. So roughly 
3,500 COVID cases linked to Canadian uh, prisons, both provincially and, and federally. And most of that growth happening with the onset of that second wave. And unfortunately, um, you know, things have, or I, I should say, fortunately, depending on where you are in the country, um, the cases have uh, apparently um, stalled in places like Manitoba uh, and, and uh, perhaps to a lesser extent in other prairie provinces. But then in Ontario and Quebec, um, over the past month, um, things have, have grown uh, exponentially in terms of the number of people who are imprisoned and who work in prisons that have gotten COVID. Um, so we've seen so far this year, based on what I've been able to, to identify through media and limited government reporting, um, over 2,200 cases. Right. Um, and just to kind of give you a sense of, of like what's happening, uh, Quebec, if I would have spoken to you this time uh, in January, Quebec would have had about 200 prisoners that have COVID. They now have nearly 500. Right. Uh, they had uh, 140 staff members roughly that had COVID up to that point. Uh, they're now around 270. So um, the cases have doubled there. Uh, in the past month. In Ontario, uh, if we had spoken this time last month, there was like roughly 295, 300 cases amongst prisoners. Uh, we're now at like 750. Um, uh, staff members, there were 36 cases. I think that's uh, probably lower because Ontario doesn't regularly disclose their staff figures. Uh, but now based on uh, a government, uh, government document I was able to obtain from mid-January, um, they're at, you know, uh, 250 in that, in that area, um, uh, you know, as a result of this, largely as a result of these major outbreaks at like the um, Maplehurst in Milton, Ontario, the two Thunder Bay facilities, um, the Algamillo Sex Detention Center. So I guess Cole's Nose version, I'm kind of going on too long here, but like right. uh, situation's getting worse. Um, it's definitely worse than what was going on in the first wave where there was only 600 prisoners uh, and 230 staff members across the entire country that contracted COVID from mid-March uh, to mid-July. And I think we should be concerned, right? We're, we're not even in March yet where we were last year when this started. And, uh, you know, our, our vaccination rollouts, uh, both um, in our communities and inside prison walls are not uh, advancing at a particularly fast pace in comparison to say other countries. And uh, um, I think there's some trouble ahead. You mentioned the um, the changing numbers. I mean, because as criminologists, we're always kind of suspicious about um, numbers. But do you get a sense that these are tracking what's happening, or do you think maybe the jump might be related to perhaps there was some creative accounting or some sort of reluctance to reveal the numbers early on? I mean, this is probably just speculating, but I guess criminologists are always kind of have a complicated relationship with official counts. Yeah. So I mean, we we have a data problem. Um, that's for sure. We just published, uh, uh, myself, Kevin Walby and Abby Dashman published a piece in the Hill Times yesterday about CSC's uh, uh, problems with their, their COVID tracking. Um, you know, we're pretty limited with the data um, as far as the, the numbers go. So like Manitoba is very good. Uh, every weekday they release uh, their numbers with prisoners and staff. Um, Quebec does the same thing. Um, Ontario only releases the number of prisoner cases uh, on a usually a daily basis on weekdays. Uh, Correctional Service Canada, which runs federal penitentiaries, does the same thing. 
Um, and then other jurisdictions were kind of basically relying on media reporting and how they've been tracking things is they see, for instance, outbreak from a local public health um, office, say in, in Edmonton, they see outbreak in Edmonton institution, but those outbreaks don't tell us how many people, um, whether they're prisoners or staff. So then the media has to go do the digging and then they're waiting for the numbers and often uh, they don't get them. So like as an example in Alberta, uh, you know, we had tracked down through media uh, reporting um, around 600, uh, no, sorry, around 780 cases uh, linked to Alberta prisons um, by this time last month in January. Um, and then, so the Prison Pandemic Partnership, uh, we released these numbers to, to kind of do a comparison across the country. And then a couple weeks later, an Edmonton Journal uh, reporter gets um, some FOI requests back and suddenly we learned that Alberta has had over uh, 1200 cases linked to, to their prison since the pandemic. So there's a 400 case uh, jump. Something similar happened in BC where and they've had considerably less uh, cases than others as far as we know. Um, they had said that since the beginning of the pandemic they had roughly around you know 30 to 40 cases uh, beginning of January and then suddenly a couple outbreaks happened and they weren't huge outbreaks by any means but then we find out oh actually there's um, you know uh, uh, close to uh, 150 uh, cases uh, that, that had previously not been reported uh, in the news media so um, we should be suspicious of the data and like I'm saying it's really hard to track this like if someone asked me to do a grid of like here's the new cases throughout the pandemic that would match like the public health numbers of the general situation in Canada it'd be absolutely impossible because I can't tell you when the outbreak started uh, or ended with precision for most of the jurisdictions you simply can't do that outside of, of um, Manitoba and Quebec. And then the other ones, you, you could do it for prisoners for Correctional Service Canada and Ontario. And then aside from that, we're, we're, and we have 13 provinces or 10 provinces, three territories and the federal government, of course. So there's uh, four jurisdictions, um, two of them doing the full job and two of them doing half the job. So um, it's a best estimate, but I, I do think we can say in general that the second wave is uh, worse. Uh, and transparency has been a problem for most jurisdictions the whole way along. Well, so on the transparency thing, I mean, prisons are always difficult to figure out what's going on inside them for researchers, but also sometimes for government officials. Um, there have been some effort to do some public health inspections. I was wondering if you had any sense about what they've been finding or what the issues they might have kind of stumbled across. Yeah, so we're, we're starting to get some access to information requests back on, on those. And there's also now um, starting to be additional um, revelations coming out through these, through these uh, public health and labor inspections. So for instance, um, in, in Ontario where Maplehurst uh, is the largest outbreak going right now, um, I think there's been well over 200 uh, COVID cases linked to that institution just in the past uh, couple weeks. Um, we, we learned that through, through um, uh, a Ministry of Labor work order that, that uh, there were violations going on in terms of following public health protocols. So like things like, for instance, not having enough PPE or not having training in place to teach people how to use the PPE who are working there. Um, and even, even 
surprisingly things like not keeping social distancing in the staff room. Uh, that's some of the stuff coming out from Maplehurst that kind of um, suggests that that lack of compliance uh, with with protocol written on paper um, wasn't actually happening in practice and it had these these consequences big surprise we're talking about prisons right um, you know it, it won't be the first or the last time we hear that policy is not being followed in practice necessarily um, and then you know we we have um, some ATI data uh, from SASC Penn that's suggesting similar things that protocols weren't being followed early on in the outbreak there. And it right. was so just I'm going to pause you there for people who are watching or listening who may be new to this. ATI refers to access to information. So just yeah. So everyone's on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, like you know, so I think um, as we get more more of the data, I think we'll see that that. Um, these larger outbreaks have have happened in places where perhaps things weren't being followed as strictly um, mm. as as they're uh, written out on paper. Because you know there have been some institutions that haven't had uh, outbreaks, and certainly um, not not the major ones that we've seen in in um, an increasing number of facilities. So um, it'll be interesting to examine that once we have our hands on the data to see um, you know what worked and, and what didn't because, um, you know, now we're getting the impression that, um, you know, part of it is compliance and some of it is like, where are the cases happening in terms of, of community uh, transmission as well, right? Like we, we saw huge increases uh, in COVID cases being linked to prisons in the prairies uh, in, in October uh, November and December, right? When you had higher rates of COVID out in your provinces. And then now that has shifted uh, largely to Ontario and Quebec driving the COVID numbers with prisons uh, upward. And, you know, in January, um, things had gotten, one would say, uh, outside of prison walls, out of control uh, in Quebec and, and, uh, and Ontario. And now uh, those numbers have gone up. And now the cases will come back down. I suppose in a few weeks time, the cases behind bars will decrease as well. One would hope anyways. So one thing, hopefully in relationship to such a decline, one thing we didn't talk about last time because it wasn't relevant or wasn't pertinent was uh, the vaccine rollout kind of broadly in society or in the institutions. I was wondering if you had any comments on how that might be unfolding, the challenges involved, um, et cetera. Yeah, so I mean, we, in Canada, we had a fairly significant controversy around um, vaccine delivery to prisoners in early uh, January. Um, the public health guidance uh, at the federal level stipulates that prisons uh, should be, prisoners and prison staff should be vaccinated in the second step. Uh, of the vaccination rollout in that um, congregate settings like long-term care homes should be prioritized first um, and uh, because they serve seniors. And in that guidance, it suggested basically any institution that provided care for seniors uh, in a congregate setting needed to provide um, vaccination. So the Correctional Service of Canada for some, it's it's a long-term care home right. um, because of, of some of the, the lengthy sentences that some folks are, are serving at, a, at even an elderly age. And so they identified um, 600 prisoners that met 
that uh, long-term senior care criteria uh, and proceed ahead with um, uh, a plan to vaccinate them. Well, the leader of the opposition, uh, Aaron O'Toole, who heads the Conservative Party of Canada, said, uh, and I quote, uh, you know, um, our government wouldn't vaccinate, uh, you know, uh, criminals, you know, we, we have to vaccinate everyone else instead. Um, that wasn't a quote, that was a paraphrase, quite loose on my part. Anyways, um, so uh, that generated a controversy around, you know, uh, should prisoners have access to vaccines before everyone else? Um, you know, and uh, I, I think actually there was significant pushback uh, from folks that, that, you know, suggested that, um, you know, if you're going to imprison elderly people, then yeah, and they're higher risk of transmission, then uh, we need to vaccinate them. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pause you there, because I thought it was, been, it was, I found that an interesting moment. In some levels, it kind of reached it almost breached the limit of popular punitiveness. People, you know, usually you can rally, not you, but you can yeah. get the public or segments of the public to rally behind tough on crime and bad criminal kind of rhetoric. That just seemed to be a limit. It's just like, no, this is, people didn't seem to rally to it the way they might. I mean, I'm not sure if that's kind of, you know, but that was just interesting to me. Well, I think one of the things that's going on, um, you know, and when we talk about um, populist punitiveness and, and penal intensification, a lot of it, you know, is, is like, okay, we don't listen to experts and we're going to advance um, these kinds of, of policies that tap into people's desires to um, see criminalized people have pain inflicted on them and, and be locked up. And I think like we're I think we're, we've seen, even though there's like certainly skeptics and like there's there's a lot of fringe movements that are denying the science um, behind these policy decisions and and you know um, are rightly frustrated. I think just about the amount of restrictions that are being placed on our on our lives right now in terms of like how how it makes us feel and the impact it has on our health and mental health. Um, but like people, I think by and large are listening to experts. Right, so we're kind of an age of of where expertise among scientists is being um, uh, increasingly uh, respected. I I would say again, so to like advance a policy like that, I think maybe th that's where the limit uh, was met. Is that you, if you have medical doctors or, or other professionals saying like, hey, um, this is not just about prisoners it's also about prison staff and it's about their communities and all of our communities really in trying to limit the spread um it just doesn't like even like on a commonsensical level what Aaron O'Toole was saying doesn't make sense anymore right so you got common sense you have expertise and people listening to expertise because they're scared for their lives and their health and they want things to get back to normal at some point and I think he just encountered a wall which is a good thing I think um Someone should write a paper about that for sure, because I think it, it, it was definitely, as you suggest, um, there are limits, and I think we saw it clearly. But it's interesting what you were just saying in terms of the respect for expertise, etc., because um, there's, I think there's a contrast to be made with our neighbors to the, to the south in terms of the U.S. We were talking uh, just a little earlier, one of the things that I just stumbled across yesterday 
is just these series of startling articles about how correctional officers are refusing to get vaccinated. And this is part of the, the anti-science, anti-vax thing that I think is way more, way more pertinent in the United States. But that has all kinds of consequences for incarcerated folks, the COs themselves, their families, etc. So I, it's just an interesting national difference in terms of the embrace of some of these kind of more fringe belief systems. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think, um, you know, uh, pris prison staff unions in this country have been lobbying yeah. for vaccines, um, which you might not be seeing in the United States right now, right? So, or in, in some jurisdictions anyway. So it is, uh, yeah, quite a, a stark contrast. And I think it, it uh, points to, to national differences for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we're sort of near the end of our catch up. Is there anything else you thought might be worth sort of touching base on? Yeah, no, I think at, at this stage, you know, it, it, I, I think the other thing that, that's been interesting to see is the stall around sustaining depopulation numbers, right? So um, I could just maybe speak to Ontario for a second, but when we last spoke, we were, I, I think, if I recall correctly, we we're talking about how um, Ontario was among the jurisdictions that significantly reduced its prison population. Uh, through, you know, diversion and, and decarceration initiatives, like we, we decreased in the first wave by, you know, roughly a third. And now we've seen um, in recent weeks, we're learning that uh, we're at um, only a 14% uh, decrease in pre-pandemic levels. So the jails have slowly uh, filled up as, as um, COVID has uh, researched in a big way uh, behind and beyond prison walls, right? And, um, you know, I think that's a function of what's happening pandemic-wise in terms of the spread of COVID in our communities more generally, as well as the fact that, hey, if you leave more people behind bars and COVID strikes uh, and more people are at risk of transmission and, and people are getting infected, right? So they, like Maplehurst, for instance, uh, was listed as one of the facilities that had, had um, used more of its capacity um that had more overcrowding and stuff like that so i think it's something something to see is whether or not now that these cases have crept back up in some jurisdictions will they uh, go back to some of the things that they were doing in the first wave to try and decrease the risk and limit the spread um you know will police again uh think about releasing more people on their own recognizance will um crown attorneys and defense attorneys um, engage in bail consent agreements? Will judges and justices of the peace release more people on bail? Will we be using temporary absences more and laying people out on early, early release? Time will tell, I suppose. Uh, but I think now that there's like labor orders and, and um, health inspections going on uh, and health authorities stepping in uh, on these outbreaks during the second wave, um, we may see, again, different kinds of pressure that may result uh, in these reductions um, in imprisonment this second wave, but perhaps not, right? Like perhaps they're, they're just going to say we've got bigger fish to fry and there's not enough prisoners that are dying, so we don't care, um, which is, I mean, that's, that's a story too, right? The mortality rate, um, uh, I think, within Canadian prisons um, with respect to COVID um, is, is not high in comparison to uh, the United States. So there, there is um, 
there is, I guess we could say if there's anything to, uh, I don't even know if we can give them credit for this or not, because it may be a function in the provincial system of having younger prisoners, but um, it seems CSC has been able to, even though five prisoners have died at the federal level, uh, been able to, pr to protect a lot of the elderly uh, prisoners, or at least make sure they're not dying, uh, even though they're going to be living with comorbidities potentially for a long time, potentially the rest of their lives. And uh, yeah, but at the provincial level, younger prisoners, um, and so perhaps they're just um, uh, dealing with this better in, uh, in the U.S. because they have so many laws that have seen people serve these lengthy sentences um, that they're just seeing more deaths as a result. Um, so that'll be something interesting to, to look into to see is it is it something that prison authorities are doing right or or is it a function of like the demographics of the people that are in there and how that's different from the U.S. The health, yeah, the health profile of people and the age profile, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think sort of it's a good place to end because it is the big question with all of this is the, you know, what are the lingering after effects of this? Do we learn some lessons or do we just revert back to kind of where we were before? So I think that's unanswered. And so uh, I think that's great. Okay. Thank you. Um, we'll touch base again at some point, but for now, stay warm and stay healthy. All right, you too. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Once again, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and most other places that podcasts are found. If you're in the Apple Podcast Store, give us a nice five-star rating. It helps with the search algorithm. And remember to follow us on social media. Twitter, it's at CCR underscore U of A. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. And like our videos and, uh, and subscribe. Thank you very much. And we hope you'll join us for the next one.